The Big Book of Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. That mysterious red planet has haunted us and inspired us for thousands of years. Now, as three new robotic emissaries arrive, a new book chronicles our Martian flights of fancy and fascination. We'll have a fun conversation with its author, Mark Hartzman. How will space exploration fare in the Biden era? The Planetary Society's Casey Dreyer will be here in moments to introduce recommendations just submitted to the White House by the Society. And down the line a bit, we'll check out the night sky with Bruce. Our chief scientist will also make a big announcement. Hope is in orbit. The United Arab Emirates has become only the fifth nation to successfully reach Mars. We congratulate everyone involved. Mission Director Amran Sharaf will be one of our terrific guests for Planet Fest 21 to Mars and back on Saturday and Sunday, February 13 and 14. We'd love to have you join this virtual celebration. You can learn more at planetary.org slash planetfest21. We'll know if China's Chanwen-1 mission is also orbiting Mars just hours before this episode of Plan Rad is published. NASA's Perseverance rover will plunge down to the surface in its seven minutes of terror on Thursday, February 18th. Turning now to headlines from the latest edition of The Downlake, our weekly newsletter. The lead story is about two new papers that cast further doubt on the discovery of phosphine in the Venusian atmosphere. One argues that what has actually been seen is just sulfur dioxide. Observations continue. SpaceX will be sending four private astronauts to the International Space Station later this year. The flight was purchased by tech entrepreneur Jared Isaacman and will include a healthcare worker and the winner of a charity raffle. I wonder how much the tickets will go for. Another ground test of the Space Launch System's core stage has been scheduled for the week of February 21. NASA says a bad wire harness and overly conservative test parameters automatically halted the first test. As always, you'll find much more at planetary.org slash downlink. Casey Dreyer is the Planetary Society's Senior Space Policy Advisor and our Chief Advocate for Space Exploration in Washington, D.C. Casey, good as always to be talking to you uh, in between the monthly Space Policy Editions. This time, uh, something that you gave us a hint about in the February uh, SPE, these recommendations are out to the uh, to the Biden administration. Congratulations on getting these out, along with a terrific complimentary video from uh, the boss, Bill Nye. Absolutely. We are pleased to provide our recommendations uh, regarding NASA to the new Biden administration and really the new Congress as well. It's always kind of a reset when the new Congress convenes every two years. And of course, now we have a new presidential administration. It's a great time to really clarify our values, uh, suggest opportunities for them, and really frame NASA not as a problem to be solved, but as an opportunity, right, as a tool in their arsenal to really address their priorities for the country. I suspect that uh, among the various requests and recommendations that the Biden administration is receiving right now, there might be, I don't know, two or three other than ours, that not many of them express the kind of hope and optimism that this does. That's one of the best spin-offs of space, really, is that it's optimistic by its nature. You have to plan for things in the future. You assume that your understanding of the cosmos is accurate, right? You have to aim your spacecraft where the planets will be, right? not where they are when you launch them. And you have to build and focus and collaborate together for these big, peaceful expressions of human curiosity. We acknowledge, you know, that the fact that we're making these recommendations in a very tough time for the country and the world. We're still dealing with a pandemic. We're crawling out of this economic hole that we're in as a consequence of that. And we really say, you know, NASA, this is something you need to think about now for the recovery. Obviously, COVID deserves to be the primary focus of the administration. But these are things you can think about now for setting up the future. And again, that's that optimism aspect. And it's really important to think about the future when things are tough, because that reminds us why we're getting through the tough stuff in the first place. 
So, of course, anybody can read this great document at planetary.org. But I'm hoping that you will uh, at least give us the elevator talk version, uh, the elevator pitch version of the five major recommendations made. And then the document goes into detail on all of these. But tell us about them. The key items are, I think, programmatically is to really deepen our commitment to NASA's science programs. It's a science-focused administration. They declare themselves to be. So this is a great opportunity to not just invest in things like earth science, but all aspects of NASA science that all integrate together, right? Science is complementary. The more you learn about other parts of the cosmos or a context for exploration, it helps inform your understanding, your models, your predictions for things close to home. Uh, We also, of course, take a very strong stand historically that we don't want Earth to be hit by an asteroid. We think the Biden administration (laughs) shares that, (laughs) as I think most people do. Uh, But just again, elevating that as a priority, something they can do, right? There's missions on the drawing board right now they can invest in and prioritize, like the NEO Surveyor mission that can launch soon and by the end of his first term and start looking for hazardous asteroids. We really emphasize, again, that there's no big need to change where we're going with human spaceflight, with the Artemis program on a moon to Mars uh, pathway. Uh, And that's just good to emphasize, right? We don't need to tear up the current plans and start afresh. And then the last two are really kind of implementation and framework ideas. Again, what I said earlier, that NASA doesn't need to be a problem to be solved, but it can be a tool in their arsenal to help the nation, And that we point out a number of relevant ways that NASA really invests in the U.S. economy, that drives jobs, uh, good paying jobs across the country, right? Not just at NASA centers. It invests in people. And that's people in the university systems, in the public education systems. And it's this pathway for people to come into the middle class around the nation into the types of jobs that the U.S., really needs right now, which is highly skilled critical thinkers in skilled manufacturing and uh, scientific work, engineering, all these areas of STEM. Of course, you know, the value of NASA too can be international and strengthening ties with our allies and our friends around the world through shared projects like going to the moon, like going to Mars with the Mars sample return mission. And you do this by investing in the space program. And this is where the five over five plan comes in where we're just recommending steady growth above inflation, 5% per year. This is a little bit higher than what Congress has been giving NASA, but not really that much, right? Since 2014, Congress has provided about 4% average uh, growth for NASA per year. And we're proposing, you know, let's bump it up to five. And that doesn't sound like much, but it builds on itself, right? So if you do a five over five, you're close to a $30 billion NASA by the end of five years. And that difference split between human spaceflight and science really opens up the potential of new and exciting missions, pursuing the kinds of science we want to see, pursuing the kinds of human exploration we'd love to see. And then, of course, that's all an investment into those key areas of the country, around the country, that we point out in the paper. So, you know, the big picture is that NASA's this huge opportunity for them to leverage to advance and invest in the nation itself. It's not just throwing money out there, right? NASA is work that is done here on Earth and in this nation. Well done, Casey. Congratulations once again to you and and all of our other colleagues who uh, had a part in getting these recommendations out, including the boss, Bill Nye, our CEO, who uh, helped create that terrific video, which uh, will complement this document. I look forward to um, seeing whatever reactions it might get uh, there from the Biden administration and across the Capitol, uh, Washington, D.C. Thanks very much for joining us for this, and uh, I'll see you at Planet Fest. Oh, I'm looking forward to it, Matt. I can't wait to share that moment with you again. That's Casey Dreyer, our Senior Space Policy Advisor and Chief Advocate at the Planetary Society. ABC News has called author Mark Hartsman one of America's leading connoisseurs of the bizarre. And there is much in his new book that can definitely be described with that word, especially as you read about how Mars was thought about and written about in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The title is The Big Book of Mars, From Ancient Egypt to the Martian, A Deep Space Dive into Our Obsession with the Red Planet. The book also contains lots of great Mars science and exploration, and speculation on humanity's future there from several great scientists, 
most of whom have been our guests on Planetary Radio, but it was that popular culture angle that made Mark's book so much fun for me. I invited him to join a conversation as those three spacecraft reach that ever-popular world. Mark Hartsman, thank you very, very much for joining us on Planetary Radio and for this terrific book, which is such fun, The Big Book of Mars, From Ancient Egypt to the Martian, a deep space dive into our obsession with the red planet. It's true, isn't it? We are obsessed with Mars, and we have been for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Yeah, we go back to the very beginning of humanity, I think, just looking up at the stars and gazing and wondering what might be out there. And, you know, ancient civilizations seeing that red dot shining in the sky and wondering what that is and attributing it to, you know, their gods of war and bloodshed and all this violence based on the color red. And that's, you know, obviously where the name Mars comes from, the Roman god of war. And, uh, and as you progress through, you find scientists always just remaining curious about what might be there. And until you start to get things like telescopes and you start to get a better picture of what it is and begin to map what you're seeing and all sorts of theories start to come to life. And not just scientists, of course, as we will uh, discuss and as you document in the book. Say a little bit more about why Mars. I mean, you know, not too many of us think of it as a, as a god in the heavens anymore. And yet that fascination continues. Why don't we have the same level of fascination and speculation uh, regarding Venus, for example. I mean, well, I guess, as you pointed out, it's not red, for one thing. Yeah, Venus hasn't really, I think, inspired the imagination as much as Mars has. Like I said, it goes back, obviously, to ancient civilizations, but then you just have all these different ideas about, you know, this this neighbor of ours that's so close, you know, relatively speaking, of course, and asking that question of, you know, are we alone? Could there be someone else out there? And Mars is, is a pretty close option for that to be a possibility, <laughs> right? So people have just wondered about it, and it's worked its way into the cultural imagination from movies and books and all the incredible science around it. But, you know, you never hear about people talking about Venusians invading. It's always Martians invading. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just part of what pop culture is sort of put into our brains. Okay, I'll only differ with you on one point, and that is I do vividly remember a mo movie starring Ava Gabor with the, the women of Venus who attack Earth. But, <laughs> yes, uh, I do remember hey, that one. <laughs> who could blame <laughs> There's them? There's a right? little bit, a little bit of Venus interest, sure. <laughs> Is all of this part of why you decided to, to create, to write this book? No, I had a very, uh, <laughs> I had a very <laughs> strange way into, into the world of Mars. I like writing about a lot of weird history. Um, it really fascinates me, just odd beliefs going centuries back. So I run a site called weirdhistorian.com, and I was looking to write a story about Tesla and his attempts to contact Mars. And I remembered reading about this just somewhere kind of in passing. I thought that would be kind of a fun topic to write about. So I started researching some newspaper archives, looking for articles, you know, headlines about uh, what Tesla was trying to do, how he was trying to contact Mars, and trying to find some news stories about it. And in my search, I came across another story from the 1920s about a man, a doctor in London, whose name was Hugh Mansfield Robinson. He was in telepathic communication with a Martian woman named Umaruru. <laughs> and this was the headline. It was like, Mar Martians have big ears, says London lawyer, uh, through telepathic conversation, you know, some kind of crazy headline. And I just thought, wow, what is this story? So I kind of looked up, you know, a few other uh, newspapers, you know, just sort of searching the guy's name and just uncovering this treasure trove of information about this event going on in the mid-1920s about telepathic communication with a, a Martian woman. She said that she was over six feet tall and she had big ears and she wore a long flowing green dress. I mean, all these details. They drove cars, they smoked pipes. So then in 1926, when Mars was in opposition, this, this guy, uh, Robinson, tried to connect with Mars via uh, telegram. So we had Rugby Radio Tower in London, which was the tallest, most powerful radio tower at the time, send off a, a telegram. <laughs> so, and then he was waiting for a Martian response and he didn't get any response, which he was upset about. He tried it two years later when Mars was in opposition once again. And again, he got no response and he blamed the scientists of Earth for not being smart enough to understand how to receive Martian communications. It was, it was our fault that we weren't. <laughs> Getting no the messages doubt. from Mars. <laughs> yeah, so this was just this whole, I mean, and this was in newspapers. I mean, the New York Times covering this. This was all over the world. The story was being covered. 
So I was just really kind of amazed by the whole thing and, and thinking like, wow, what else was going on around this time? And then I started uncovering all the other stories of, you know, obviously Tesla, of course, but Marconi and uh, William Pickering at Harvard and some other scientists of various universities with their own thoughts of, of how we might contact Martians. Quite a time to be alive. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And of course, today as well, when we're finding out about the real Mars. But uh, all these wonderful headlines, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up one of them in, in just a few minutes and some of these other characters. But I want to quote what past uh, planetary radio guest Pascal Lee said about the book. He's co-founder, chairman of the Mars Institute, and of course, at the SETI Institute. Uh, he calls uh, the Big Book of Mars a very well-researched, hilariously written and beautifully illustrated account of Mars and its exploration in human culture. Some serious fun. Hartzman did Mars history a great service. I cannot agree more. As I told you a while back, if I had decided to write a book about Mars, it would have been this book, except that you did it better than I could have hoped to. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the compliment. And I was thrilled to hear that from Pascal. He was a huge help with the book. Um, he had so many amazing things to share and incredible stories. I mean, just a what an incredible guy doing amazing things right now. He's one of my favorite Martians. Um, how, long did it, how long did it take to pull together all the material in this book? Because I'm thinking especially of the wonderful illustrations that include all those newspaper clippings from 100 or more years ago. I mean, this is, this is quite a huge research project, wasn't it? It was. I mean, it was a lot of, a lot of fun to put together. I probably spent about a year... One of the really fun experiences was going was going to the Lowell Observatory, you know, Flagstaff, mm. Arizona, mm-hmm. and I'd reached out to them obviously in advance and kind of organized the trip. And I just got to go back into their archives room, and the woman there brought out one of those uh, rolling carts and just had it stacked with boxes of notes from Percival Lowell, newspaper clippings, you know, scrapbooks, um, just a ton of stuff. And I, I sat there for the day going through it. I'm like, oh my god, this is just incredible. You know, you're seeing his handwritten notes, scratching out comments on manuscripts and uh, notes and scrapbooks, all these amazing clippings, um, obviously much of it about him. That was one great resource to get the real things. And then again, just finding stuff on online. I mean, there's so much online now. It's, it's really wonderful going through different you know, newspaper archive services, finding all these great scans. So yeah, it was, it was really <laughs> fun and, and surprising. <laughs> I, I'm so glad that you brought up good old Percy, Percival Lowell. How much of the belief that people developed in the late 19th and early 20th century, the belief that there really were Martians and entire Martian civilizations, how much of that can we point back to to Percival? I think a lot of it. I mean, certainly there was belief in intelligent life on Mars before he came into the scene, but he was just so vocal about it, you know, and he was such an ardent believer. He kind of took the torch from Giovanni Schiaparelli, who was who was the one who first saw lines. The famous Canali. <laughs> yes, Canali, which got translated as canals. And then here's everything else happens from there, right? If it's <laughs> right. canals, it's artificially made versus channels, which is Canali, which could have just been naturally made. But no, it's canals. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got the, all these theories just going kind of crazy. But, you know, also just taking in the context at that time, you had the Suez Canal, which just got completed around that time. And that took like 10 years of, of hard work. Percival Lowe was thinking like, wow, this is this is an entire planet covered in canals. These guys must be geniuses, you know, uh, amazing engineers and strong, you know, huge people to, to be able to pull something off like that. So it's just kind of fun thinking like how, how his imagination kind of ran wild with it. And as he's looking through his telescope, he built in, in 1894 in Flagstaff, He's just seeing all these different lines and continues theorizing about it, writing books about it, and lecturing all over the country. So, like I say, he's very vocal. He's gained all the headlines. And, uh, you know, he had opposition. Some people disagreed with him, but he, he disagreed with their <laughs> with their arguments. <laughs> yeah. And then you had others just, yeah, then you had others sort of finding their own theories and, and again, ways to contact Mars, which are just incredibly amusing. They really are. I, I, we talked about these newspaper clippings, entire pages. Uh, here's just one, and there are a ton of these. Uh, it's, it's on page 47 of the book. It's a 1912 edition of the Salt Lake Tribune with great illustrations. And here's the headline, Mars peopled by one vast thinking vegetable. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> and, one. And it isn't it? And some of the stuff... Actually, I mean, maybe with a little exaggeration by the newspapers, they were known to do that. 
Uh, some still do, but some of it actually originated with thoughts by by scientists based on the best knowledge of the time, right? For sure. I mean, this this one in particular, the uh, the thinking vegetable <laughs> headline. <laughs> so this one was was an actual hoax. If your eyes are are pretty good, maybe a, a magnifying glass, you can read the whole article in the book. Yeah, um, yeah, I did that actually. Yes, <laughs> but it's crazy because it puts it out there like, okay, they they use uh, a real professor at Lick Observatory and they attribute all these different thoughts to him, which he didn't say. <laughs> he got a little upset about. He was unhappy about, yeah. Yeah, but they make it sound reasonable. Like, okay, well, here's what we know. Here's what others are saying. And here's, you know, these clouds that they think they're seeing. No, it's not a cloud. It's a, it's a giant eyeball. You know, and they go through it in very scientific detail, and it's completely absurd. But again, it's playing off of the fact that people were really obsessed with this idea at that time. There's example after example of this in the book. Even these great thinkers, I mean, you briefly mentioned Tesla, which was your inspiration, led you into the book. Marconi, generally credited as the um, inventor of radio or wireless, as it was known then. Even Thomas Edison was willing to say, yeah, there might be something to this. Yeah, they were. They thought it, it could very well be the case, right? I mean, I love the Marconi story. He he had received a wavelength of like 100,000 meters or something, I believe, in 1920. He didn't know how that could exist on Earth. How could it have originated here? So he made the assumption that it originated from Mars. I think studies of that went on for a few years until he finally realized several years after that it was actually coming from uh, GE, based in Schenectady, New York. And it was like a secret test that they were running. They were like, oh, actually, that was us. Sorry about that, Marconi. <laughs> and I could just imagine the disappointment, like, ah, oh, it came from Schenectady? You know, I thought it came from Mars. So, <laughs> really? What a come down, but this, literally. Yeah, but but this didn't like dismay everybody. You know, people were like, okay, well, that wasn't from Mars, but maybe something else is. I mean, one of, one of the stories I really love is from a professor named David Todd from Amherst. And this guy was relentless. His efforts began in 1909 when Mars was in opposition and you know, pretty close to, relatively speaking, pretty close to Earth. And he wanted to create a hot air balloon that could ascend 50,000 feet into the atmosphere. And he thought then he could receive Martian signals without any interference. He's like, I'll have a nice clear path. I can get their signals. They probably think we're idiots for not having got them already. So maybe this will be <laughs> successful. He was all in on this idea. He, he did a test run um, of 5,000 feet and felt pretty good about that. And then I believe he was planning to go up in September of 1909, and it never happened. It's hard to find why it never happened. There's probably some obvious reasons, but <laughs> didn't specifically say this is what canceled the trip. It didn't happen, but he tried it again in 1920. He had the government backing him. He had a pilot from the U.S. thing from the Army. He was going to pilot and build the hot air balloon. And again, that sort of fizzled out at the last minute, too. And then he came back with some other studies in the mid-1920s, still trying to talk to these Martians. A lot more fun with Big Book of Mars author Mark Hartsman is still ahead. This is Planetary Radio. Greetings, Bill Nye here. Saturday, Sunday, a fleet of spacecraft, including NASA's Perseverance rover, is arriving at Mars. Join our live online celebration. Planet Fest 21 is February 13th and 14th. I'll be there with explorers, including Jim Bell, Katie Mack, author of The Martian, Andy Weir, NASA JPL Chief Engineer Rob Manning, and my old friend Phil Blake, the bad astronomer. Get your tickets at planetary.org slash planetfest21. We're going to Mars! <sighs> Matt, was that was that too much? I I got into it there. No, you uh, you nailed it, boss. Another thing that I've always been fascinated with were the attempts, not just to receive communication from the Martians, but to communicate with them. And prior to Marconi and Tesla, who thought that you know maybe we can send a signal out out to them, there were these attempts. Not using radio, right? At least that were proposed for communicating with uh, with Mars. Yeah, and the mid around mid eighteen hundreds, you had a few scientists who thought we could carve giant structures that they could see from Mars if they had telescopes, they could spot it. They wanted to use math as like a universal language, right? So let's create a a perfect like Pythagorean triangle and, and be able to see that, like digging ditches in the Sahara and then lighting it on fire, so it'd be a giant flaming triangle on the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> that they could see. And I thought, oh, if they see it's like, you know, the language of mathematics um, that they're seeing, they would know that there's intelligence here. It wouldn't just be a random shape. It would be something they could understand. So you had efforts like that, which was pretty amusing. And then even later than that, actually going back to 1909, that was a big year for, for uh, outreach <laughs> attempts. 
<laughs> and there was another professor from Johns Hopkins. I think his name was Professor Robert Wood. He wanted to make like a big wink. He thought Earth could wink at Mars. Again, just doing this through giant fabrics out in the Nevada salt flats, the, the alkali sands. And he thought if we get these giant mile long or I think four mile long pieces of black cloth and put them on these automatic rollers, we can have these giant black spots that kind of roll and unroll and then roll back up and unroll and roll back up. And it looked like we're winking and that they could see that and see it as a signal. So it was like a very kind of low tech um, and low cost opportunity to reach to, to make a connection with Mars and say hello. And and that didn't happen, unfortunately. That, that would have been kind of fun to see. <laughs> there was sort of a version of that, uh, much more modest. Uh, it was in that first message that was sent by the great Frank Drake, uh, now retired from the SETI Institute and others. Uh, I think Philip Morrison was involved, where they sent sort of a, a grid of uh, black and white. It was basically on off, but it might have been assembled by the Martians, or by that time they were thinking of people a lot farther out across the universe, into this this grid of, of black and white uh, spots or rectangles might just have uh, been a uh, sort of the revenge of uh, Professor Wood. Mm. Well, that's a good point, too. I mean, SETI does send signals out, right? That's something we've been doing, of sending signals out into the universe to see if someone can receive them. It is pretty fascinating that, you know, you got to think that there is something else out there. Yeah, I'm still waiting. Lots of controversy, of course, about whether it's a, a good idea to uh, be sending messages to the Klingons that we happen to uh, good eats right down here. <laughs> let's go on to, speaking of Klingons, uh, fiction, the role of fiction in Mars. Uh, and there's been so much of it. When did writers of fiction uh, start to realize that Mars would be a, a fertile place to, to base their stories? I mean, you see a lot of it begin the latter half of the 19th century. You know, and I think a lot of that just goes along with the science that was happening. So again, you have the canal theories coming through in the late 1800s, and that sparks the imagination of these writers. Like, oh, if there's intelligent life out there, what might that be like? And you get a lot of fascinating thoughts. You know, everyone knows, I think, H.G. Wells doing the War of the Worlds, which was uh, around 1897, 1898, which is obviously probably the most famous of all the stories. But before yeah. that, there were, there were lots of writers thinking about what life might be like and kind of projecting what an ideal uh, world could be like. One of the examples I thought was really interesting that's probably not well known at all is called The Unveiled Romance, which is credited as being written by two women of the West. They, they don't even get their names in the book. And, and that kind of just speaks to the, the idea of, of what uh, you know women's rights were like back then, You know, having very few of them. And so they, they projected onto Mars a much more utopian society for women. An earthling finds his way to Mars and meets with a Martian there whose sister is very busy because she's she has a job, basically like a CEO of a company. You know, she's running she's running the show, and he talks about how the women receive three times the pay of men. Uh, <laughs> you know, they they can vote. They have you know all, all the things that a woman would want. You know, it's like a modern woman now. They were projecting back in the late eighteen hundreds. And then you have the Earthling kind of making fun of the Martian for like, oh my God, yo, here we we tyrannize our women. If they vote, we like we discard it. So it's interesting how they used Mars to kind of project a better life for for all women. Scandalous women running companies. My my God, what'll be next? <laughs> Maybe a president <laughs> right. or a vice president. <laughs> right. And there's another one called Mars Revealed, again from the late 1800s, written by um, a religious guy, uh, spiritualist, who's talks about an experience he says he had where his his spirit floated off to Mars with a guide. Uh, someone came upon him one day while he was just sitting by a tree enjoying the weather and said, hey, what are you doing sitting here? We could go to Mars. So it's, it's all very bizarre. And so they float to Mars and he describes Mars in incredible detail about, again, how wonderful it is. It's very advanced. And everyone there is really religious. It gets to the point where every every paragraph is talking about God and the glory of God. And everyone goes around a dinner table talking about God. And then they can look at God from their telescope and they see him on his own planet and how wonderful that is. Everything is incredibly advanced. They've had electricity for thousands of years. They have like pipes made out of diamonds. You know, <laughs> everything is really <laughs> wonderful. And he's basically attributing it to their, their religious nature. So it's almost like, hey, look how great Mars is because they have such a, a strong belief in God. If we could all be this religious here, you know, we could have that too. 
from there, you also just get more of the science fiction stories, the more traditional science fiction stories, which are wonderful. And, you know, the War of the Worlds, of course, and, and others. And those are all sort of inspired by the science that was going on and the, and the possibilities of life and, again, what that might be like. And what's so great about that is that feeds right back into the next generation of scientists who read that stuff. And then they think, oh, wow, I want to make that story happen. Like, how can we actually escape the earth and fly to Mars like the stories I read about as a kid? So I kind of love how science influences science fiction and science fiction in turn influences science. That is a theme that it comes up over and over on this show. I hear it from so many of the scientists and engineers who are leading our exploration of Mars and, and the rest of uh, the solar system and the universe. Um, have you read any of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, those tales about John Carter of Mars? I think they're very entertaining. And of course, John Carter had, had super strength because he was in this low gravity environment of Mars. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now I read John Carter of Mars. And that was, it was a fun, entertaining book, you know, cliffhangers, because it was sort of serialized, right? So yeah, yeah it's it's a lot of fun. And, you know, again, I, I love the fact he starts off in a cave in Arizona, probably not far from where Lowell had his observatory. <laughs> um, so you can see like, there's these little influences like, oh, that's, that's cool. This guy's doing this in Arizona. I'm going to start with my character in Arizona and he'll go to Mars. And yeah, here's what I know. I know it has low gravity. What's that mean? Well, the guy can jump like Superman or something and have incredible strength. So it is fun to just see like the, the things that they knew, what they could do with that, those facts with their imagination. By the way, did you happen to catch the movie, which sadly bombed at the box office, but I actually thought it was pretty good. The movie John Carter, based on the, the Burroughs uh, tales. It came out like maybe like 15 years ago, right? Something like that. Maybe less, maybe 10. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't see that one. I recommend it. If you can pick it up, I don't know where it is online, but uh, it's it's worth a look. I think it actually just wasn't marketed very well, but it's a really fun film. Um, <laughs> much like much of what has been done over the years with The War of the Worlds. And I, I'm thinking of what Orson Welles did to uh, take that story from H.G. Wells and turn it around. And you report on this, of course. Did you get the impression, I've always wondered, because I've heard both sides of this, that Orson was just shocked, shocked, I tell you, to, to learn that people had thought that um, he was actually reporting the news about this Martian invasion, or that maybe Orson knew all along that maybe he'd be taking a few people in. That's a good question. I mean, it, from all accounts, it seemed like he was a little surprised afterward when he heard that people were taking it seriously, like, oh my God, really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he seemed he seemed a bit, you know, I don't think he was pleased about that. He I think he was a little concerned that he had caused any kind of damage with people. There's a story I mentioned in the book where he offered to like refund someone's train ticket that they bought. They had the guy like sell a shirt to get a train ticket or something, <laughs> something, <laughs> something crazy. You know, I, I really do love the whole story around that broadcast. First of all, I think it's one of the things in culture that most people, whether you're into Mars or, or just science in general, you probably heard about that happening, right? Like the, the panic of 1938. And it's one of those things that you look at and you think, I can't believe people actually believe that. It just seems yeah. kind of crazy that people would think Martians were actually invading Earth. But then when you think about the things we just talked about, you know, all the stuff that was going on in newspapers, all these headlines from people like Tesla and Marconi and Edison, very well-respected people, some of the smartest people on the planet. And they're saying that there's life on Mars. So when, when this uh, broadcast comes over the airwaves, it's... Maybe not that shocking. And the way Orson Welles did it was just so genius. I mean, first of all, it was like early, early radio, right? So he was very creative with how he used the medium, playing up the the fake band, which just sound like turned a tuner and I hear a band and that sounds normal. And you have the introductions of the band. It all sounds completely normal. And then the break-in with the the news report and, and these kinds of special reports and, and alerts were not uncommon. You know, you had World War II brewing over in Europe. So break-ins like that were kind of kind of a common thing. So all of it felt very natural. And then he had people coming in late because people were busy listening to Edgar Bergen and his ventriloquist dummy. Charlie McCarthy. Charlie McCarthy, which is just, I, that's a whole other story because I don't know how a ventriloquist was so successful on radio of, of all places. That, <laughs> that just, that amuses me a lot. <laughs> I, I will drop in, apropos of nothing, that Edgar Bergen was better on the radio because 
he made no attempt not to move his lips when he was uh, performing with Charlie McCarthy in person. But anyway, yeah, back to bars. <laughs> <laughs> so again, you have people kind of coming in late, so they missed sort of the introduction that Orson Welles gave. And granted, he mentioned it a few times through the broadcast that, hey, this is just a, a dramatization of the H.G. Wells novel, you know, but people people have freaked out and missed it by then. I just love the whole, you're putting the whole story in context of what was going on at that time and maybe understanding why people may have reacted the way they did. But it was like, a lot of a lot of crazy action. People running in the streets and truly believing that that life on Earth, as we know, it was over. Aside from what was going on in our country, you know, this this panic happens, which is crazy, right? And you think like, okay, so that worked once, but but that's not going to happen again. But then it did happen again, which I love. It happened eleven years later in Quito, Ecuador. Two DJs wanted to drum up some publicity, so they thought, hey, we should do that War of the World story, and we'll do it like Orson Welles, but you know, we'll make it. Just like he localized it to America, they localized it to to Quito, to their you know surrounding area. Unlike Orson Welles, they didn't bother at all saying that this was a dramatization. They just went right into it, <laughs> and they had people impersonating like the local local politicians, local priests, so it sounded very legitimate. They had like all the police, the entire police force was like racing out to the next town to try to help. Everyone took it very seriously, and when word got out that this wasn't real, people got really upset understandably so and they formed a mob and they marched out to the radio station and they started attacking the radio station they were throwing like they set it on fire the fire truck couldn't even get there because the streets were too crowded with with the mob 15 people ended up losing their lives so uh, um in, in a way the martians did attack that is a way of looking at it isn't it wow we got to mention ray bradbury he of course uh, appears in the book uh, in fact, uh, I was interviewing Andy Weir for Planet Fest, which we'll talk more about in a moment as well. And and we talked about Ray and and that Ray, with the Martian Chronicles, which rocketed him to re- the real fame that he richly deserved, those were stories which could have happened on Earth. It just happened that Mars was a convenient place to put them. And of course, Ray had been looking up at Mars and he had read the Burroughs books and he wanted to go there, just like like John Carter. I mean, what are your impressions of of Ray Bradbury? I agree. I mean, I love Martian Chronicles. is just great. You know, again, sort of projecting humankind and, and and the fact that like even if we go to Mars, we bring our humanity with us, right? We bring our yeah. baggage, and that's what's I think it's really interesting when you read his book about. First of all, it sets up like Martian life, and it's very, you know very imaginative how we uh, sees Martians living, and then of course when we get there, we you know we just ruin everything. And it's very unfortunate. And it he goes on and he talks about just the different ways that, you know, our human foibles just get in the way of things. And uh, even if we go somewhere brand new, we have the same problems. It's just another, it's an interesting way of talking about humanity and, and our faults, right? But he does it with this great setting of Mars. And it's just brilliantly done. And I love the fact at the end when he talks about being the Martians, um, that, that we humans are the actual Martians, which yeah. is such an enduring idea. And it's something that you can see happening in the near future. I mean, Andy Weir kind of gets into that a little bit with, with Mark Watney basically being a, a Martian, right? And talks about colonization and if that can happen over the next, who knows, century or whatever it might be, eventually, you know, we'll, we'll be Martians ourselves. I really love the fact that Ray Bradbury got to be there for the landing of Viking got to be a JPL and witness that. I mean, what a what a cool thing for him <laughs> to have had this vision, you know, years before and then to actually see humans, or not humans, but humanity get to Mars, you know, via the the Viking lander. What a what a cool moment that must have been. I can tell you it was. You know how I know? Cuz I was standing with him uh, at that moment. I was in college. Uh, a friend of mine and I had wangled our way into JPL. Uh, with uh, press passes. We didn't tell them that our radio station was 10 watts. I was standing in a group in Von Karman Auditorium at JPL with Ray Bradbury, uh, the other great writer, Theodore Sturgeon. Uh, Robert Heinlein was upstairs in the cafeteria and uh, a bunch of other Mars fans as uh, Viking One uh, came down safely on the surface of Mars. And I can tell you, he was beside himself. He was absolutely thrilled. That's amazing. What a what a cool experience. That must, must have been a, an incredible thrill for you, just all of that happening at one yeah. time. Very, very cool story. I definitely, I treasure it. Uh, you mentioned Andy Weir, uh, and of course, he and his hero from The Martian, Mark Watney, uh, made it into the book. And 
Uh, and he's also going to be, as I said, part of uh, Planifest. He, he's not going to be able to join us live for this session at Planifest 21 that you are going to be part of with me. Uh, you and I are going to join Kim Stanley Robinson on this panel that, that, that we're calling Why I Make Up Stories About Mars. Stan Robinson, of course, is, is also mentioned in the big book of Mars. He put together that great trilogy, a real classic of Mars settlement, Red, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. Uh, Andy, who I talked to about this, he said that he thinks of it as almost a combination of taking the hard science of Mars and adding to it the sociology and the psychology that the Bradbury brought to uh, Mars and the Martian Chronicles, as you you see, and you've talked about this, that our human foibles getting in the way as we try to settle uh, a new world. Uh, is that also the impression you get? And yeah, I read um, I read Red Mars. I think that's a great way to put it. He really did put a ton of science into it. I, from what I understand, he spent about ten years researching and learning, which is very ama- you know amazing and admirable. And then yeah, took what he knew scientifically and then wove a story around that. And you're right. I mean, that's what's uh, kind of beautiful about the book is again, he has these first hundred who go there and kind of settle a society. And then as more and more people come, it's just the same, the same garbage we deal with here on Earth, but happening <laughs> now on Mars with different, different results and different uh, consequences because of, you know, the nature of Mars, right? But he has like a lot of great, just kind of like philosophical discussion in the book, which I really loved, you know, just talked about like terraforming Mars. And, you know, there's a great discussion that kind of quoted uh, sort of a back and forth in the book about what we should be doing. Like, should we be trying to terraform Mars? Is it really ours to to control or should we just be enjoying another planet and not trying to change it? Like, this is what it is and, and we're visitors here versus making it ours. Um, and I, I kind of like that he got into those discussions and just, you know, the pros and cons of these different attitudes towards how we envision Mars and what we might do there in the future. Beautifully done book. Brilliant. And uh, we will talk with Stan about this, of course, during uh, during that live session. Uh, I'll just mention Planifest, uh, the 13th and 14th of February, a little plug here. And people can learn more at planetary.org slash Planifest 21. We've barely mentioned the movies, uh, you know, indirectly The Martian, of course. What a hit. Uh, what a brilliant film as well. And yes. uh, John Carter, not quite as successful. I want to thank you for including that marvelous classic of the cinema, Santa Claus versus the Martians in uh, Big Book of Mars. <laughs> Had to. <laughs> I actually saw that one about, about 20 years ago. I think I saw that for the first time and uh, it definitely stuck in my head. But yeah, that's that's just uh, another crazy little movie. I mean, the title alone is, is pretty darn intriguing, right? <laughs> so I, I love the premise of it that these Martian kids are, first of all, they're just sort of zoned out watching Earth TV and they have no joy at all like expressionless and they go to like their elder who i call uh, a cross between yoda and dumbledore i call them yo dumbledore and they're like you know what, what do we do and he's like oh we, you need like uh, a santa claus to bring joy to these kids so go to earth and get santa claus basically is, is the premise of the movie the martians you know zip over the earth they and what I love is they don't know like which is the real Santa Claus because they're all over the the shopping malls and on the corners. <laughs> so see, we're like, oh, which one is it? And of course, they find their way to North Pole through the help of a couple of young kids, and they kidnap Santa Claus, and uh, chaos ensues. Great literature it may not be, but uh, uh, it, I guess it was fun for the time. And uh, it has this credit uh, that it introduced the infamous Pia Zadora. That's right. <laughs> She's one of the, the zombie kids. <laughs> I also want to thank you for uh, a still image. There are, I don't know how many in the book, but one in particular that I was very happy to see because I have a fond place in my heart for this. It was a young Bill Bixby and his uncle Martin, played by one of my all-time favorite actors, Ray Walston, my favorite Martian. It was a great show. I grew up, I used to watch it all the time when I was a kid. It was on, obviously on reruns back probably like I guess early 80s watching the the reruns like every afternoon because we had like four channels I just I just loved it so of course yeah I had to include that and there's a lot of great moments you know it's kind of fun re-watching it now and, and having a better understanding of Mars and and the pop culture that's kind of preceded all that captured by the government when he first crash landed yeah it's 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 a great show yeah there's some decent science in the show as well shockingly um speaking of real science 
I'm giving short shrift to your uh, telling of the the real history of Mars exploration in here because we do so much of that elsewhere on this show other weeks. But it's here right up through uh, the Curiosity rover. How do you feel about the fleet of robots that uh, continues to reveal the red planet for us, including the, the three that are arriving pretty much as we speak? I love it. It's so fascinating. You know, it was so great talking to some of these amazing scientists at NASA, you know, JPL, about what they do. I remember getting on the phone with a few of them. I, just for a quick background, like my regular job, aside from writing books, is in advertising. I'm, I'm a creative director at ad agencies. I, I would tell them, like, your job is just, you have the greatest job in the world. You know, <laughs> I'm jealous. The things you're doing are just, they just boggle the mind. We have robots on Mars. I mean, it's populated by our machines. And we can get it there. And we know how to do that. I just, I absolutely love it. So I love that the science they're able to do with it. I love what they're, um, the fact that they can control these, uh, these machines and the scientific devices they put on them and the plans they have. I mean, I know Perseverance Rover will start collecting rocks to eventually be returned to Earth. There's just so much exciting potential. I'm hoping that at some point it, we get to a point where we can dig beneath the surface enough to see if there is some kind of microbial life. I mean, I, I kind of think that, that they'll find something. I, I'm excited by the possibilities. You know, once you get away from the, the radiation and maybe a little bit of moisture down there, we know that there's moisture uh, below the surface. So there's so much exciting potential ahead. Uh, who knows what we might find? I'm thrilled by the whole, the whole process. You and me both, and uh, of course, I think every listener to this uh, this uh, radio program podcast who cannot wait to get below that surface and see if, you know, even if there isn't anything alive up there now, was there at one time. The book ends with a variety of experts, their thoughts about humans on Mars, and I, I think most of the people that you, uh, that you quote have been heard on this show. Do, do any of them stand out to you? Yeah, one of my favorites that does come in toward the end of the book was Jim Logan, who just had a really a lot of really fascinating ideas. And he talked about how horrible Mars is. And he had a lot of great <laughs> colorful quotes about just what a horrible place that Mars is. He's like, it's this is not a place for humans to be. It's ridiculous to want to go there. He has a, a, a great theory about going to Deimos instead. He called Deimos the, the most valuable piece of real estate in the solar system. And he believes we could go there and you know, sort of core out the center and put space stations in there with, with, with artificial gravity so that it could become like an Earth-like environment within a space station. And you'd have the protection of the shell of, of Deimos from the solar rays, right? So we'd be protected from all the, the radiation, which was a really interesting thought. And then we'd be close to Mars, you know, but he thought that would be a better place to, to have off-world living. First of all, I said, you know, how, how do we core out a moon? And he's like, well, hey, if we can travel that far, we ought to be able to figure that part out. And I said, well, how long do you think something like that might take? And he said, 20 years after people stopped laughing about it. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, it's a really interesting point of view. And he, he goes on to kind of explain that. He said, look, you know, people used to laugh about flight, human flight. When they stopped and they put math and physics to the problem, you know, you have the Wright brothers lifting off the ground. And it's not long after that, you have Lindbergh crossing the Atlantic. And then you have some 30 years after that, you have uh, Apollo 11 landing on the moon. So it's it's an interesting thought. You're right. Like, okay, if we stop thinking it's a silly idea and we put some physics to it and some math some math to it, maybe maybe we can make that happen. So I thought that was a pretty fascinating theory. One other quick theory I thought was really interesting was just maybe more of a question was there's a lot of talk about colonizing Mars, but no one really talks about if that's even possible aside from being able to live on Mars. But the question is really can we reproduce on Mars? Gravity is the one factor that hasn't change on earth right like we've been through all kinds of mm -hmm. changes but gravity's always been a constant so what happens when that constant changes to one-third gravity and no one knows and no one's tested it other than maybe on tiny animals but it's it's something that it's a it's a pretty big unknown so it's a, a pretty fascinating question of whether that will happen or not and if it does happen then we get back to the, the idea we talked about earlier that now we have martians so it's a fascinating area for sure I like to tell people that I have a $5 bet with my boss, Bill Nye, our CEO of the Planetary Society. I say that Mars will be terraformed within 10,000 years. He says never. It's just too hard a place for humans to live. Uh, did you detect a, a consensus uh, among the people that you talked to regarding Mars as a, as a place to live? 
I think in general, most would agree with what you said, it would take thousands of years to be able to do it. I thought Pascal Lee's take on it was pretty interesting, where he thought, okay, if it might be scientifically possible, and it would take a very lengthy period of time, like you suggested. But he thought the bigger issue would be the politics involved. And could you really get a society to maintain the effort for that long a time? Let's just say you're right, 10,000 years. Imagine 10,000 years of politics aligning, people continuing the efforts and agreeing that we have to do this. So the efforts would not ever stop or get changed or goals would, would differ, or whatever it might be. So that that he thought was kind of a hurdle. Again, that's humanity getting in the way. <laughs> Could we actually accomplish this thing? So I thought I thought that was a pretty interesting take and, and uh, I tend to agree with that. It's a nice ending for a terrific book, Mark. Uh, thank you very much again for talking to us about the big book of Mars, which is uh, published by uh, Quirk, Quirk Books, and is available pretty much everywhere. I highly recommend it. It is uh, more fun than I've had reading about Mars in a long time, and I have a lot of fun reading about Mars, I have to tell you. Uh, I, I look <laughs> I forward to seeing it. it. Yeah, of course. And I look forward to seeing you at Planet Fest. And uh, who knows, you know, maybe we'll have a shot. Uh, I'll see you uh, on Mars someday. That would be awesome. I would love that. And I'm looking forward to Planet Fest. Thanks so much for having me. Time once again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, which gives him many, many broad responsibilities, including something I, I think you're prepared to uh, give us an announcement about. Yes, we have announced a new grants program, the STEP Grant, Science and Technology Empowered by the Public. And uh, people can learn more at planetary.org slash STEP Grants. But it's for science and technology research uh, tied to what we do, uh, planets, search for life, and planetary defense from asteroids. Learn more at planetary.org slash STEP Grants. I think there's probably more to say about this, and maybe we'll have a separate conversation uh, next week if I can tempt you uh, to do that. Pre-proposals aren't due until late May, so there's there's no hurry. We'll, we'll get into it more next week. You got some time. And these are open to everybody, right? Open to everyone internationally. Excellent. So uh, the sky's open to everybody. What's up there? Sky's open to everyone but you, Matt. What? <laughs> Locked out We've closed again. it down in your or over your house. <laughs> so, uh, so it's it's uh, we're largely devoid of planets right at the moment, except for Mars, uh, which is hanging out in the south in the evening sky. And to its left, you can find the very similar looking right now, Aldebaran, the reddish star in Taurus. And farther over towards the southeast, you'll catch Orion. It's a good time to hang out with Orion to look for the winter hexagon, which you can find a little map online of, but includes the bright star in Orion. And then surprisingly enough, uh, there are a total of six bright stars included in the hexagon, which is a very large (laughs) asterism feature. Good time to check out those stars and uh, deep sky objects while we're waiting for the crazy morning sky full of planets to come at some point, but uh, not really yet. On to this week in space history. It was 20 years ago this week that the near Shoemaker spacecraft did something it was never designed to do, but the engineers figured out how to do it anyway, which was at the end of their orbital mission around the asteroid Eros, they landed on it and (laughs) transmitted data back. Quite amazing. Such a great story. Yeah, it really is. 2013 this week was the Chelyabinsk uh, bolide atmospheric boom over Chelyabinsk, Russia that injured over a thousand people when a 18 to 20 meter asteroid came in and uh, broke up in the high in the atmosphere, sending a shockwave down to the surface. Wasn't bad news for everyone. I mean, there's a bright uh, side, a, a silver lining to everything. Uh, the, the people who uh, install windows were thrilled. Wow. <laughs> you are good at looking for a silver lining. I'll give you another one, although it's a hard way to get it. It's, uh, it's a reminder and wake-up call that planetary defense, uh, asteroid protection, is actually important and not just an obscure thing that never happens. That's better than the glass one. <laughs> Unless you're working glass. and Yeah, okay. On to random space fact. Energetic. The sample caching system on the Perseverance rover 
They will collect samples and set them aside for future spacecraft to pick up and bring back to Earth. That system has 17 motors, nine drill bits, and 43 sample tubes. Oh, it's not man. complicated at all. Not a bit. <laughs> wow. That's fantastic. It's all going to work, of course. I have total confidence. Well, they do great work. They really do. All right. We move on to the trivia contest. And uh, I asked you what person's name has to do with both Earth's and Mars's prime meridian. In other words, what is agreed upon as zero degrees longitude. How do we do, Matt? An even bigger response this week. And it wasn't just quantitative, it was qualitative. People loved this question, and many of them thanked you for leading them uh, into this little uh, rabbit hole. They, they loved it. I, I'm going to let you give the answer, because pretty much everybody, except for the guy who said it was President Charles Arthur, uh, <laughs> pretty much everybody had this. Charles Arthur? Wasn't it Chester? Chester, I'm sorry. Chester, of course. <laughs> I'm sure he'll forgive me. <laughs> Probably. It was named after Sir George Biddle Airy, the British astronomer royal from 1835 to 1881, who did all sorts of physics, uh, largely having to do with optics that applies, including to telescopes and other things. That's the name. Now, what are the items? Would you like me to discuss those as yeah, well? Yeah, would you? Or? Please. Sure. On Earth, as many people know, zero longitude is defined by the Greenwich uh, Observatory in England. And it's actually defined by a telescope that's named the Airy Telescope after George. On Mars, it was initially defined as a crater that was named Airy. And then when they got more precise and better data and imagery, a crater within that crater, a small crater, Airy Zero, uh, was uh, tied to the definition of zero degrees longitude. Whew. Airy. The answer is Airy. Here is the lucky winner uh, among that big crowd of entries this week. And it's not anybody I remember. I'm pretty sure first time, uh, first time entry, first time winner. Congratulations, Jonathan Rimgis. He's our winner in Illinois who said, indeed, Sir George Biddle Airy, specifically Airy. And he talks about uh, running through Airy Zero, that crater. You have won yourself a Planet Fest 21 t-shirt. The t-shirt that uh, we've come out with in cooperation with Chop Shop, specifically to celebrate our Planet uh, Planet Fest 21 celebration. It's Saturday and Sunday. You can learn more at planetary.org slash planetfest21. Michael Kaspol in Germany, he says, us backyard astronomers, of course, know Airy mainly by his disc at Greenwich when we're focusing a telescope on stars. Always good to zero in on Airy, like Mars Global Surveyor tried to do on Mars. Oh, oh zero. Zero in. Yes. <laughs> I get it. It's cool. Darren Ritchie in Washington. I'd heard of Airy Zero on Mars, but didn't know the backstory for the name. This makes more sense, since Airy is not an adjective one would normally use to describe Mars. <laughs> Rob Cohane in Massachusetts, I roughly estimate that if Mer Opportunity, that's Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity, had lived another about 175 years, it might have had a chance to make it to Airy Crater. <laughs> You're going to like this one too. Laura Weller in the UK. Wow, I live surprisingly close to Earth's prime meridian. Just 7.3 10 trillionths of an astronomical unit. <laughs> Definitely the most convenient unit to use. Brent Panalone in uh, New Mexico. Great episode as usual, Matt. During my research, I also learned something interesting. The nearest landmark to our moon's prime meridian is Crater Bruce. I guess Dr. Betts is just too modest to draw attention to himself. Well, that's rarely true, but in this case, I did notice Bruce, but I couldn't figure out an excuse to mention it. So thank you for doing that. Uh, finally, this from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild. George Airy was a British gent, and stars and stuff were his niche. He built a transit circle scope in England's town of Greenwich. While Airy Zero sits on Mars, a crater unpossessing, they both mark prime meridians, geographies addressing. Is that light applause? <laughs> Snapping, man. 
Oh, snapping, snapping, snapping. I'll do applause. There you go. Thanks, Dave. I think we're ready to move on. Back to the Perseverance rover. How many lasers? How many lasers are on board the Perseverance rover? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Well, you can't have enough lasers when you're going up against Mars. Uh, you have <laughs> you have until the 17th. That'd be February 17th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this one. Uh, you could zap it right over to us at that. Uh, I, I just had to. I had to at that address. <laughs> oh, that Bruce nice. mentioned. You have one more opportunity to win yourself a Planet Fest 21 t-shirt. You can see it uh, in our store at chopshopstore.com or uh, planetary.org slash store. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what you would use a high-powered laser for. Thank you, and good night. About the step grants, could I get a grant to build a high-powered laser? I, I mostly needed to buy a lot of D-cells. <laughs> uh, no, you are actually one of the few people in the world who is ineligible for the grant. Shoot. All right. Well, anybody wants my blueprints, uh, write to me. Uh, he's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by those earthbound Martians who are its members. Join us on the Red Planet at planetary.org slash membership. Mark Hilverde is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Aries. Mm-hmm.